So I'm a big fan of phrases like assuming good intent, confronting brutal facts, being critical friends. We consciously, every team I've worked with, consciously spent time on how are we going to be together. From Positive Momentum, this is Meet the CEO, a show that takes you behind the scenes of the working lives of people who've reached what some might call the pinnacle of the career ladder. I'm Matt Crabtree, the founder of Positive Momentum, and on today's show, we meet Ian Elmokadam, the CEO of RWS Holdings PLC, a world-leading provider of technology-enabled language, content, and intellectual property services. A £700 million business, RWS worked with over 80% of the world's top 100 brands, more than three quarters of Fortune's 20 most admired companies, and almost all of the top pharmaceutical companies, investment banks, law firms, and patent filers. Their global team of 7,500 talented people are simply united by a love of language and a passion for innovation. Now, Ian started his career at Accenture, but soon moved client-side in the late 90s, working for Centrica for eight and a half years, ultimately as MD of Centrica Telecommunications. He then moved to the legendary Compass Group as Group MD for UK and Ireland, before starting out on his CEO journey, first at Exova, then at V Group, and most recently moving to RWS in July 2021. He's also been a non-executive director of the £4 billion public services provider, Serco, for nearly six years now. I started out, as we always do on Meet the CEO, by asking Ian why he became a CEO. Well, Matt, first of all, great great to be talking to you uh, today. And um, I have to say it's a, a credit to your powers of persuasion that uh, you, you've got me to do this, because I, I normally avoid at all costs talking about myself. But uh, I have to say I have had the chance to listen to a, a, a few of your podcasts and, and, and your interesting other guests. And Thank uh, you. Uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. And uh, in common with several of the CEOs you've interviewed, I think my answer to your first question will probably be quite similar. And that is that I certainly don't think I set out to be a CEO. I guess some people do, but in my case, I certainly didn't have that sort of foresight. So I've tried to think about how I got here. And I have to say, you go back to kind of what shaped you, I think. And one of the things I always tell people is that my parents always told me to do my best. Um, whatever that was, you know, whether it was at school or, or, or some project or doing theatre or whatever it was that I used to spend my, my, my childhood doing, um, they just said, look, approach every situation, do your best, and if you've done your best, sleep well at night. And, and that is very much my philosophy. And so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, I guess if I look back from a, a relatively early age, I, I was always the sort of person who would put themselves forward to do something. So if people were looking for a volunteer or there was an opportunity and you know, someone needed to step up and, 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 and take, take charge, I guess, I probably was more likely than not to put myself forward. Sometimes to my you know, great regret afterwards, but you know, <laughs> um, doing that way. And then look, I think from a career perspective, if, if you take that sort of philosophy, then you just do the best you can at every every step. And, and I'd like to think that's that's what I've done. And I, I'm a great believer when I'm talking to other people about their careers. Don't try and plan it too much. You know, do the best you can at every stage. And if you do that, then I'm a great believer that that new opportunities will will open up to you. And that's certainly been uh, you know my case, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, as you say, that's that's in common with so many of the CEOs that we've been lucky enough to have on this podcast is it's never been the goal. The goal has just been to, and I think you put it quite well, you know, you're the kind of person who would who naturally would put your hand up for something and you sort of end up in this yeah. role, don't you? <laughs> Almost sort of by default because you're the only person who's sort of putting your hand up. But, I mean, you've taken roles that would have been I mean, hotly contested. I mean, RWS is a fantastic business. It would have been hotly contested to be the, the CEO of that. So there must have been a point at which you went, no, I like this. This is this is what I like doing, and I like it for these reasons. Why why like it? What's to like? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this is my third CEO role. Mm. And I, I, a very good piece of advice to anybody who gets that call is, you know, think very carefully uh, about whether you are the right person for that situation, you know, uh, and we maybe go and talk talk about a bit more. You know, I, I'm quite clear I'm good at some things, probably less good at others. So I think that's the first thing. And, and the other thing, especially as you get older, is, you know, keep good company, right? So the business and what it does and the opportunities and its market position, of course, all of those things are really important. And RWS is a market leader and it's a fantastic business and a great community of, of clients and colleagues. And, and, and there's nothing not to like about that. But, you know, who you're working with and, and, and the colleagues that, that are around you uh, makes a huge difference to, uh, to, to to anyone doing this job. So I think those are the things you think, um, you know, quite hard about before you sign on the dotted line. Yeah, quite right. Quite right. You do look at some people who are sometimes not in the role for very long and think, yeah, maybe you didn't quite spend enough time thinking about, are you actually a good fit? Not are you a good executive, but just are you a good fit for that organization? Because organizations have different different cultures and different ways of working, right? Different, different investor profiles um, can be uh, alone a feature, can't it? Correct. And also just, I think, you, know, you need the right person for the right time sometimes. You know, some people are right for one phase of a business's evolution, and then you actually need a different skill set uh, at a different point. And, I, and I've seen one or two situations where, honestly, people should have just stopped a year or two earlier and didn't. Uh, and it was a shame because what they'd done previously was brilliant, but the last couple of years, maybe not quite so. And it wasn't that they suddenly became bad leaders. It was just actually what was required next was maybe something that that they weren't as skilled at, at doing. So you know, I hope that when my time comes, someone will be kind enough to, to tell me if I haven't spotted them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a way in the distance now. But I mean, you, you were just before we started recording, you were mentioning um, Alison Britton, uh, who we've been lucky enough to have uh, as a guest, and is now not the CEO of Whitbread anymore. She's off doing all sorts of other things, including uh, Premier League. Um, and she talked, has spoken about that both publicly and privately about there's a time and a place. And yeah. she knew when the right moment was. And, you know, Whitbread continued to do very well. And now, you know, under under a new CEO. Now, we could talk about this for some time, but we have more questions to ask and you have a busy day ahead of you. Um, what part of your day do you preserve? How do you work? Ian? I mean, this is just a question about. You know, what is it that people don't see in terms of working disciplines that you have or parts of the day that you you protect? How does it work for you? So, again, like a lot of your guests, I'll, I'll start my answer by saying no week is no two weeks are the same. No. Um, so you have to adapt to travel schedules and time zones and all the rest of it. But there are three things, actually, that if I can, I try to preserve. 
So the first is I like to get in early. Uh, and if possible, have half an hour when I'm in the office, when it's quiet, to just get my head into the day. So I'll go and make myself a cup of green tea. I'll, I'll have a look at the diary uh, and the inbox and just trying to get my head into the right zone. And if I've got a few minutes spare, especially now I work with the world's largest community of amazingly talented linguists, I will spend a few moments on the Duolingo app trying to improve my French. Do you? Uh, oh, brilliant. Much success so far, I <laughs> So that's that's the first one. Um, the, the second one um, that Kate, my wife and I have always tried to do is have dinner together as a family at the end of the day, even if, you know, in the early days, certainly we'd end up working after dinner and it still happens today. But, you know, when our kids were younger, we'd all try and have dinner together as a family, catch up on each other's days and then we'd scatter off and do homework or whatever it was. Uh, and, and even now our kids are grown up and not living with us. Uh, Kate and I will still try and sit down and have, have dinner together and uh, we're still delighted when Sam or Grace or both of them turn up as well and, and, and join us. So that's the that's the second thing. And then I have a, a Saturday morning routine, which is I'm a, a not very good runner, uh, but I do enjoy running. And um, I tend to go to the local park run on a Saturday morning. And um, for those listeners who don't know what park run is, it's a volunteer run event that runs all over the country and all over the world and it's nine o'clock in the morning turn up run five kilometers and it's a great community of people from all walks of life uh, and often you'll get three generations of the same family turning up and, and running together so um, if I'm around uh, and, and uh, I'm free on a Saturday morning I'll either go and run or I'll go and volunteer um, at Park Run because uh, it takes a few volunteers every week to, to make the run happen. So those are my three things, you know, early mornings, dinner with the family, and if I can, uh, a Park Run on a Saturday morning. I love that. One of the things I love most about this, um, doing this podcast, is is the opportunity to talk to people like you, who, and, you know, you and I have known each other, are getting to know each other. But there are things <laughs> I don't know how I would ever find out that you were doing Duolingo in the morning or that, you know, you're a green tea or a park runner or whatever. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> find these things out. Um, and I think it, often I think people have this impression of CEOs that somehow you're living some sort of entirely different life to everybody else. And your life is just the same as everybody else's with the same interests and priorities and balance that you're trying to to get into your life um yeah the park run thing is great park run is so popular. i'm also a, a keen but not very good runner i don't do park there isn't a park run near me but i do do what i do a half marathon once a year which is slightly pathetic I've got friends who do like seven marathons a year or something mad but that i like it because i like the discipline of it it just mm -hmm. i have to go and practice and i have to go and do it not to embarrass myself and be the last person who comes in or something but it is just that routine, isn't it? And that takes you to a different place in your mind, I find. Yeah, it is. And look, I think in, in there also is that work can be all encompassing. And Absolutely. at the end of the day, you do have to step back and say, well, what really matters? And I think your family and your health yeah. you know, matter more than anything. And so trying to make sure that a few things are preserved that, 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 that keep an eye on those things, I, I think is really, really important. And I think you're a better leader. Yep. If those other things are, are working right, obviously. So yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. don't, don't don't neglect them, I think, if you, if you can avoid it. Easier said than done sometimes. Isn't it? Isn't it just especially when you're running a global business like yours on multiple time zones and uh, it's it can be a particular challenge. 
Um, let's talk about challenges. Um, you know, here we are, uh, you know, powering our way through 2023. Goodness me, you know, we're in the sort of spring of 2023. I don't know how life moves so quickly, it seems to. It's been a challenging few years in all sorts of ways. You've been involved in all sorts of businesses, both as a, a leader of them, but also as, a, as an advisor and a, a consultant um, uh, earlier in your career. What's what's the most challenging situation you've encountered as a CEO? So you're, as you say, third time CEO. And what did you learn from a more challenging encounter that you had? Um, I think the odd thing about me is that I actively seek out challenging situations. So if I look back on my career, I've typically been attracted to situations which were either turnarounds or moments of profound industry change or post a big merger as we are here at RWS and trying to bring two large communities of people together in, in, in one business. So I've always sought out those sort of challenging situations. However, I think there are two types of challenge that, that you know, really keep you up at night and that you should always try and avoid. Um, and that the first one is safety. Um, you know, I've worked in some safety critical industries and, you know, the worst phone call you can ever get as a leader is that one of your colleagues is not going home safely um, to their family. And I've had that call and you never, ever, ever want to have that call. And regardless of whether, you know, who's to blame or whatever, it's just the worst thing that can mm. happen. Mm. So that's the first thing, you know, you, you remember those things and it makes me obsessed with safety, you know, and, and uh, you know, just setting the right tone and making sure that isn't neglected. Mm. I, I think the other thing is um, whatever the business challenge, you know, I'm a great believer you can work your way through it. If you're working with people with whom your values are aligned. Uh, and I think the other really stressful thing is if you find yourself at moments in your career working um, with people who are not wired the same way as you are. So if those priorities around integrity and you know safety and things like that are not commonly held, then you need to get yourself out of there. And, and you know, if there are people working for you, then you need to move them on. Uh, and if you can't do that, then you need to get yourself out of that situation if you can't influence change. And, and values things are hard to change. So that, in, in, in all the things I've done, the moments that have been the hardest have either been to do with safety uh, or they've been to do with, with, with ethical and values-related issues. And, uh, and they're the things that wake you up in the middle of time. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you and I have um, young adult children um, and I don't know about yours. In fact, I think I do actually, because I think we've had this conversation. They actually have a better sense of values alignment than I had at that age, and a stronger sense of I I must do so, and a, and a better nose for it, actually, a better nose for whether this aligns with my values. And that's not that's not exclusively about social and environmental responsibility, although that's clearly a big feature. But it's just that nose for it. Whereas I don't know about you, but earlier in my career, I probably put up with some stuff I shouldn't. And in this day and age, would not you know you would not put up with. And I think they're they're leading the way. Uh, our, our young adult children. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I think it's actually really a hopeful thing for the world that actually that, yeah. that the way their generation think about a company's purpose, it, its values, and and where they want to spend their time. Um, I think it's a little bit less materialistic than we used to be, um, yep. if I'm honest. And yep. uh, 
it's a good thing and they rightly hold people like me accountable and, and boards and leadership teams for for the culture for the social conscience um for, for the wider purpose of, of the organization and i think we're all better we're all better yeah we really are i, I suspect you have the, the dinner the family dinners that i also love but I also now know I'm going to get asked some more difficult questions than I did when they were 15 or seven. Um, and it's all, it's all a bit more challenging, but actually really, really, they really, really make me think. Um, well, most of them, you notice it also when you're doing town halls and things that yeah. questions yeah. you get asked now yep. are quite different to the questions you would have got asked 10 years ago. I'm and just... It's a good thing. Oh, they are the right questions, entirely the right questions. But uh, and our job is to be to be lifelong learners with it, right? Um, let's talk about learning. Um, uh, who's most influenced the way you lead, Ian? Goodness, you must have seen a lot of leaders. And and as I said in the introduction, you're a, a non-executive director for Serco. That gives you yet another perspective on leadership in the world. Who's who's most influenced you as a leader? Of all the questions you ask, Matt, I think this is the most important one. Um, because when you get to, let's say, the, the latter stages of your career, um, you are inevitably a, a function uh, of the people you've encountered on, on the way and, and the support and the challenge that they, they've given you and the, and the wisdom they've imparted. And I've been incredibly lucky. Uh, to work with some really remarkable leaders. And um, it was hard picking out a few. I'm going to mention three people specifically, and then I'm going to make a more general point about boards and, and chairs, if I may, as well. Sure, but, yeah, great. So the three people, in, in no particular order, sort of in chronological order, I guess. Um, Mike Alexander, who was the managing director of British Gas's downstream business, uh, and when I stopped being a management consultant, I went to work for British Gas, who'd been a client of mine. And... Um, you know, Mike trusted me with two really high-profile things in my early stages of my career at, at British Gas. The first was head of gas competition, so I managed, if you like, the deregulation of the gas industry when it opened to competition. Uh, and then the second was, as a consultant, I helped to write a business plan for British Gas selling electricity. Uh, and then I got asked to see if I could help take that business plan and turn it into a business. It was my first exposure to sales uh, and, 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 and trying to win business. And, uh, and the thing I remember about that is, first of all, you know, there were many better qualified people for those jobs than me, I'm absolutely sure. But Mike just took a punt on me. And he was also just kind of remarkable leader himself. You know, not the most effusive of personalities, but, but very smart, supportive and challenging in the right way and he had this great ability to zoom into the detail when he needed to and step back when it was right to step back and and, and i always uh remember that and i'm incredibly grateful to mike for, for, for giving me both those opportunities but those early insights into into leadership and i hope a bit of it rubbed off on me my second name is, is sir roy gardner um who was the ceo of centrica same sort of period and um uh, if you if you talk to Roy, he'll say I was the youngest managing director he'd ever appointed. And 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 somewhat similarly, you know, Roy gave me um, in this case the chance to to launch and grow um, British Gas's telecoms business that that we then acquired OneTel and you know grew it for five years and then ultimately sold it. And again, that was a brilliant time in my career. Loved it a bit. Worked with great colleagues and we shook up the market a bit and, and had some fun. But in terms of leadership. Um, 
Roy's formula, I've always tried to figure out what it was. And I think it was something like this. I think it was always trying to pick a good business. That always helps. It's hard to turn a, take a bad business and turn it into a good one. So try and find a good platform, even if it needs sorting out. Hire the best people you can possibly find and incentivize them well. And don't worry too much if there's a bit of creative tension between those individuals. If you hire a bunch of smart people, they will have opinions and they won't always necessarily agree with each other. But if you can create an environment where you can have those disagreements in a constructive way, you'll get a better outcome at the end. And uh, I think that was, you know, one of Roy's great strengths is, is that. And, um, you know, Roy and I went on to work together at, uh, at both Compass and at Serco. And uh, I guess if I had a mentor in my career, you know, it, it probably is Roy. Uh, and I've got, again, a lot to, to say thanks to him for. Fantastic. Uh, and then last, but by no means least, is Richard Cousins. Um, sadly, the late um, CEO of, of Compass Group um, uh, and arguably uh, one of the most successful CEOs in the FTSE 100 of our, of our generation. And I, I was lucky enough to, to join Compass the same week as Richard. And he was my boss for, for four and a half years. And um, again, not necessarily the easiest person always to work with, but boy, was he good at his job. And, and I'd like to think, again, I took some things away from him. And I think in his case, he had this great ability to simplify the complex. Uh, and Compass is an enormous business. And at that time, it was in quite a mess. And his ability to boil it down to a few simple things, focus on them, measure them to death, and persist with them was phenomenal. He was also a very brave leader. He, he, he would take decisions that scared the living daylights out of me, to be honest with you, but often correctly. And then the final thing was, you know, we had some difficult issues to sort out at Compass. And um, I learned early on that Richard would always back me to do the right thing, even if it was the hard thing. Uh, and again, back to that values wiring, enormously important. And look, the, the other angle on this is just boards and checks. You know, if you become a CEO, you're likely to be working with, with a board of non-executive directors, you're likely to be working with, with a chair. Uh, and look, again, I've just been enormously lucky to work with, you know, a whole bunch of chairs who I won't name. Um, and often that humility is actually one feature of a good chair. They're not the sort of people who seek to, to put their name in headlights, but they know who they are. And I think the key thing is when businesses go through a tough time, the CEO needs to know that the chair's got their back. Not that they'll always agree with them, that they'll, they'll challenge you in the right way and, and prod you when they think you're not getting it right, but that ultimately um, the board is there to make a problem better, not worse. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have, again, been so lucky to work with some great boards and some, some great chairs. That's a really, it's a really interesting aspect, and it's, it's probably an under-discussed topic on this podcast is that, that critical relationship between CEO and chair uh, that, that ebbs and flows, doesn't it? As CEOs transition in, chairs transition in, transition out. Um, hilariously, you and I ran into each other at Vienna Airport entirely unintentionally a few weeks ago, and I was lucky enough to meet your incoming chair because you were there with your board. I think both of us are still slightly amazed. I think you still think it was some sort of setup from me. But <laughs> but, but seeing you with your new chair and getting a moment to engage, I always think that's a tremendously important relationship that is necessarily very discreet. But on both parts, 
But when it works, boy, does it work. I mean, it's rocket fuel for an organization, isn't it? From from every it, aspect. It, it, it really is. And, and, and that dynamic between the chair and the CEO um, is absolutely crucial to the success of a, a, a company. And as I said, it's not that they're there to just agree with you. They're absolutely there to challenge you and to, to share their wisdom uh, and ultimately to make sure you're the right person for the job. That's the toughest decision they have to make sometimes. But 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 it's really important. And, and um, uh, again, I've just been very, very lucky with uh, with, with the chairs that I, I've worked with. So if you're listening, you know who you are and thank you. you you've That's kind of fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, listen, I'm conscious of your time. I've just got um, three more questions for you. We'll try and rattle through them, but they're uh, ones that I know our, our audience really love learning about. Um, you've you've mentioned already the, the sort of link to this question because I'm going to ask you you know what makes for a really effective executive team and it sounds like Saroy might uh, might be part of the contributor to uh, to the mix here but give us a quick version what's the secret yeah. to a really effective exec? No, I think we we have started to touch on it. Look, hire the best people you possibly can, and and, and don't hire people that are just like you, right? You want the diversity of experiences you know diversity in every sense of the word you, know, you, you want your your exec team to reflect your customer base uh and you want a myriad of perspectives um and then i think it's really important that the exec team spends time together on both the what and the how so you know strategy what are we going to focus on all very important but values purpose and very importantly, how are we going to work together as a team? So I'm a big fan of phrases like assuming good intent, confronting brutal facts, being critical friends. We consciously, every team I've worked with, consciously spent time on how are we going to be together. And also we try and, you know, recognize we're all human beings as well. So we we, we try and make sure that, you know, we, we, we acknowledge when one of us is having a bad week or something's going on in the family and, and, and be there. For each other the other really important thing is you've got to be passionate about your customers you want to grow the business you've got to have a team of people who first and foremost talk about obsess about customer service and delivery uh and are really really passionate about that yeah 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 it's, i mean I, I was lucky enough to have a ringside seat for a few hours to you and your exec team a few weeks ago when uh Prince Edwards was in the building. I mean, not in the meeting. He's not on your exec team. Well, the Duke of now the Duke of Edinburgh, I guess. That's we right. Call him. Yeah. Um, uh, that was it. Sort of, I think it was this day before he was announced as the Duke of Edinburgh. So clearly something happened. Um, but you, you know, watching your team able to have that constructive knockabout. I love the expression "critical friend." We use it all the time with teams. Such a valuable thing. Last couple of questions. What's big on your horizon? And you are very, very busy, as you've mentioned. You know, bringing your organization into the future, bringing two organizations together, you know, big acquisition that you made. Um, is that the thing or was there more change on your horizon? I, I think the interesting thing about our situation, or one of the interesting things about our situation at RWS is that we're very much at the intersection between um, tech and service. So technology and service and in particular artificial intelligence. So we are, you know, we have, you know, a pioneering AI platform, Language Weaver, which you know, we, we've been working on for many years. Uh, and we've also got very talented people. Uh, and I think we are at the forefront in our industry of figuring out how those two things combine 
uh, to deliver even better solutions for our customers. And um, it's not easy doing that. You know, it, 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 there's no roadmap. You're very much breaking the new ground. But at the same time, it's really exciting. Uh, and it's great to have that 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 puzzle to to figure out. So uh, watch this space. I think we'll have a lot more to say about this uh, over the coming years, and I'm sure we'll make some mistakes as we go about it. But that's the nature of you know innovation, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, an organisation. I mean, it's, you know, there are podcasts abound on the topic of AI, right? And articles abound on the topic, especially um, right now. But your sort of business is one that's really interesting to watch, where the human element is clearly so valuable but their opportunities to automate and to develop um solutions are clearly there and uh, it's very interesting to watch you walking that that line between providing outstanding service to clients as well as you know improving the efficiency of the way you operate so yeah good, good luck to the whole team last question um three last bits of advice for an aspiring ceo if somebody's listening to this and thinking well, I think maybe I might just be doing my best as well and maybe I'll get a tap on the shoulder. What would be your advice for that person? Um, uh, Three quick things. I'm going to give you my 500 pound story, first of all. So it's back to this don't try and plan it. So I always tell this um, to everybody. When when I left UCL or when I was leaving UCL, it was dead easy to get a job in those days. Not like today when, you know, graduates have a tougher time. If you could be bothered to fill in a few application forms, you you, you get a job offer. And I was lucky to have a few when I came out of UCL. Uh, And I picked the one uh, that paid me £500 a year more than the next one. And they sent you to Chicago for training. So I joined Anderson Consulting as it was in those days. Uh, So totally superficial reasons for accepting that offer, really. And and the real point is, um, on my first day at work, uh, I met Kate, uh, who became my wife. Um, So I think the point about this is the most superficial of decisions can change your life in in the best of ways and you can never plan them. So that's my my first one. The second one, and we've touched on this, is keep good company um, and learn from others around you and and, and, and put yourself in the company of the best people you can possibly find. Uh, and, And life gets a lot easier and certainly the job of a CEO it is 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 vastly easier when you've got a team around you who are often smarter than you are uh, and you're all on the same page and you're enjoying working together. So I think that's the, the second one. The third one is um, the world gets smaller as you get older. So um, always leave on good terms. And I had a boss who I dearly loved working for early in my career uh, and he left to join a competitor. Uh, and I was, first of all, just, gutted when he left because I really loved working for him but he didn't leave on leaving for a competitor is always difficult and he didn't leave on the best of terms and I don't think that helped his career later on um and so I've learned again from people like Lloyd you know build that network part on good terms when you do inevitably move from one job to another uh, and work on the basis that you bump into that person 20 years later which you might um perhaps at in our airport, as you and I say, that it's a happy reunion and you're glad to see each other because you never know um, where that next step in your career is going to come from and, and who might appear to help you that next step on the way. So, so that's my last my last thoughts. Such such good tips, and that last one it is such a good one. You know, the world is a very small place, and we often say in the consulting firm in positive momentum, you know, 
you know, be, be careful who you, uh, you know, be careful how you behave on your way up, because when you build an independent consulting practice, you're really going to need all your friends, right? And so if you've upset people through the course of your career, this is probably not a good career choice. But the same is true as an, as an executive career. You know, it is, it's a complex world we live in, isn't it? With lots of changes and lots of things that happen, but it doesn't mean that you don't have to treat people civilly with respect, with dignity. Exactly. Because, because all of that's going to come back at you in, at another time. Correct. Absolutely. Ian, what a joy talking to you. Thank you so very much for your time. It's been a real, real privilege uh, speaking to you. I guess I should say merci beaucoup, uh, <laughs> as, as, both, both expert duolingoers. I'm sure you've got a whole lot more than me. Um, best wishes to everybody in the RWS team. We're having a fantastic time working uh, with you. It's a real privilege to engage with your team. Um, but yeah, we wish you and the whole team enormous success in the future. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Matt. Been a pleasure talking. Well, what another barnstorming Meet the CEO masterclass there from Ian. Lots of echoes from other CEOs we've heard from when it comes to family, health and early mornings, but also some really interesting new items, including that critical responsibility for safety. I can't believe we perhaps haven't talked about that before, but of course, no matter what industry you're in, it's such a critical and really grave responsibility. And that crucial relationship between the CEO and chair. I'm thinking we should really explore that with other people we have on the show in coming episodes. It's ever clearer to me the more of these podcasts we record that CEOs are placing values alignment at the absolute heart of their businesses and decisions. And Ian is clearly no exception. In fact, in my view, he's a role model in that regard. Love the glowing tributes he paid to former leaders and that sentiment that we're all a product, aren't we, of those previous bosses that we've had. Something worth reflecting on in our everyday work, perhaps. Finally, I especially like those three key tips for a great executive team. Assume good intent, confront the brutal facts and become critical friends to each other. As Ian says so wisely, it's always as much about the how as it is about the what. Now, while Ian goes off for a green tea or a park run, we'll say au revoir and merci. And of course, thanks also to you for listening. If you're a new listener and Ian has wet your appetite, then please go and feast on our past episodes. And of course, please, please, please click that subscribe or follow button on your podcast platform of choice. As ever, if you're a regular, thank you so much. And remember, if you get the chance to share this series with friends, family, colleagues, whoever, we'd be incredibly grateful. Meantime, as I say, every episode, best wishes in all your endeavours. And look forward to welcoming you to the very next episode of Meet the CEO from Positive Momentum. <laughs>